Good morning, everybody, and again, happy Easter, happy Resurrection Day. This is the day that the Lord has made, right? Let us rejoice and be glad in it. You guys, as we open up this Resurrection Sunday, I'm going to be reading from the text of the Gospel of John. And it'll be up on the screen, but if any one of you needs a Bible to kind of follow through in Scripture, uh, raise up your hand and we'll make sure that we get Bibles to you. So as we start this passage of the account of our Lord's resurrection, you guys, let's all stand. In the Gospel of John, beginning in chapter 19, verse 38. It reads, After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took the body of Jesus. And Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. Then they took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen with the spices, as the custom of the Jews is to bury. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So there they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day, for the tomb was nearby. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together, and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. When Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb, And he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the handkerchief that had been around his head not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went away again to their own homes. But Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain. Then they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. And when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father and to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples, that she had seen the Lord, and that he had spoken these things to her. 
Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Now Thomas called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. So he said to them, Unless I see his hands, the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst, and said, Peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here, and look at my hands, and reach your hand here, and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. You may be seated. He's not there. He's risen. How many of you have a friend or know somebody who died and was buried and three days you got to see them alive? Nobody? It's kind of a rare thing. It's a rare thing that we're celebrating today. And so... We want to examine the evidence today on if this is something that really occurred, okay? And if at the end of the day you find that this is something that really happened, that Jesus of Nazareth rose after being killed and is alive today, what would your life look like that would be different how it is now? Would you love Jesus in a different way? Would you love people in a different way? Knowing that he's alive, would you maybe read the words in the scriptures and and maybe those red letters a little differently when he tells you to do something? Would you do it? Because he's alive. Would you look up to the sky for him to come again because he says, watch and be ready because I'm coming at an hour you do not know? Would you love his bride, the church, and be a part of her and be a member and love her as he loves her? See, I fear that Christians today, many Christians, believe in a dead Jesus. Maybe you today, coming here, you might have thought you believed in a risen Jesus, but I would just challenge you, does your life reflect that? Does your life reflect that? We're going to look at the resurrection today, asking the question, what if he's alive? Considering the historical evidence of what has been called 
one of the best proved facts in history. What I love about Christianity is that it is historic and it can be investigated historically. Suppose we would approach the scriptures not as holy manuscripts, but as a written record that had just been handed down throughout the centuries, and we would just be, you know, we would just be uh, fair, and we would approach it as we do all other ancient manuscripts. You know, many secular historians do that, and they even come to agree on the central facts that undergird the resurrection. Now, before we get into it, we need to ask ourselves, why did Jesus even die in the first place? Why did he even come? You know, why is it important that he rose? First Corinthians chapter five gives us a, a bit of an idea when Paul declares to us what he calls the gospel. And it seems that he quotes to something that was called a pre-Markian authority or a, a pre-Markian manuscript that had been passed around. Where he says, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached, which you received, by which you stand, by which you're saved, if you hold fast what I preach to you. He says, for I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received. And then here's kind of that historical account that was, was authoritative. That Christ died for our sins. So real quick. Why did Christ die? For our sins. You might even make it personal today and just consider your life and the trail of sin that, that follows you. And you might say, Christ died for my sins, according to the scriptures. And he was buried. Who do you bury? You bury dead people. He was buried, Paul says, and he rose again the third day. The resurrection has been called the crowning proof of Christianity. Dr. William Lane Craig says that the resurrection is the divine vindication from that which Jesus was executed. That is his claim to be God. See, Jesus was killed because he claimed to be God. And the cults will tell you otherwise. Read the gospel of John like a child and you'll know exactly why he was killed. For blasphemy. Because he claimed to be God. He claimed to be equal with God. And so if he was put to death and stayed dead, he deserved it. But if he was put to death and rose from the dead, then it's God's sign and God's hand upon him, God's validation and vindication that it's true. That he really is the second person of the Godhead, the second person of the Trinity Namely, the Son. The resurrection is that crowning proof of Christianity. Everything else that Jesus said and everything else that Jesus did is secondary in its importance to Jesus rising from the dead. It's more important than the cross. Because if Jesus would have gone to the cross and stayed dead, it would have mean that he wasn't the sacrificial lamb. He wasn't the pure and spotless one. The one that would be God himself. The only one who's able to atone with pure blood for the sins of the world. You see, the resurrection is the issue, people. 
If I had to lay all my cards on the table, I would go all in. I'd stake all my chips on that Jesus is alive. Now, if the resurrection didn't take place, then Christianity is a false religion. And I'll be the first one to admit it. In fact, Paul himself says it. He says, if Christ is not risen, our preaching is empty. And our faith is empty. Your faith is empty. And we are found false witnesses of God because we testify that God raised Christ up, but he didn't in fact raise Christ up. And if the dead do not rise and Christ is not risen, then your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. And everyone who's fallen asleep in Christ before us has perished. They're in hell. And if it's in this life only we have hope in Jesus, Paul the Apostle says, we above all men are the most pitiable. And I will be the first one to say, if Jesus isn't alive, let's go find something else to do. Or let's go look for a different hope. Because I still see my sin. But, if it did take place, then Christ is God. And the Christian faith is absolute truth. In fact, Paul goes on to say that in verse 20 of that same chapter. Now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of all those who will rise from the dead. The world's greatest enemy has always been death. It's been said, no man is wise enough to outwit death nor wealthy enough to purchase freedom from death, nor strong enough to crush death. The grave always wins the victory. This applies not only to humans, but to all things. Animals die, plants die, species become extinct, cities and nations rise and fall, and like people eventually die, Homes, cars, that brand new Chevy, clothes, all fade, rip, crumble, and eventually turn back into dust. Romans chapter 8 calls this the bondage of corruption. Or what science calls the second law of thermodynamics, that all systems go from order to disorder and eventually dies. Evolution completely goes against that. The grave always wins the victory. All other men, even the greatest men and the holiest men, have died. Buddha, dead. Muhammad, dead. Confucius, Caesar, Marx, Pope John Paul II, Gandhi, Zoroaster, Heath Ledger, Paul Walker, Shirley Temple died this year. Mickey Rooney died last week, but Jesus is alive. It is true that he died like all other men and was buried just like all other men, but unlike all other men, he returned from Hades, resurrected his own body, and emerged from the tomb to be alive forever. Yes, he's alive today, Prineville. Now, you know C.S. Lewis, right? He wrote the Chronicles of Narnia movies. He said this, Jesus is either a liar or a lunatic or he's got to be Lord. 
Don't try to pull this on me. This Jesus was a a great man some 2,000 years ago. He was a prophet. But not God. You see, a female Jewish, Jewish rabbiess at the Wailing Wall on my last journey told my pastor Rob, when he asked, who is Jesus to you? She says, he was just a really good Jew. A very obedient man. Dr. Henry Morris says, to back up C.S. Lewis's, he's, he's either a liar or a lunatic, or he's got to be our Lord. If all of this is somehow a delusion, and if Jesus of Nazareth did not really rise from the dead, then he is no different from other great men who are also dead. He is worse than they, in fact, because he is thereby branded as either a charlatan or a madman since he staked all his claims to be absolute deity on his promise to return from the dead. Not just a good man. Not just a prophet. This guy said, quit asking me for a sign. This is the sign I'm going to give you. You destroy this body, and in three days I'll build it up again. As Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, so I'm going to be three days in the belly of the earth. But then I'm going to rise from the dead. And you know what? If he didn't rise from the dead, what do you call him? A liar. A liar. Let's find someone else to follow. But if the resurrection is really a fact of history, then not only are his claims true, but so are his promises of life for us. Death wouldn't be the winner anymore, but would be the defeated foe. As Peter says, Blessed be the Lord, the God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's because Jesus is risen from the dead that we have a living hope today. And you can just look at your life and the just path of destruction behind it. And the people you've wounded and the people you've hurt. And your guilty conscience. Because you know you've sinned. You can look at the way you failed yourself and failed your mom and your dad. You failed your God. And you can look to Jesus now. And you can find that there's a living hope, there's forgiveness, there's renewal today. In our examination today, we want to look at six main points of the resurrection. First of all, that it's the foundation of Christianity. Without the resurrection, clearly, there would be no Christian church. You guys have read the accounts in the gospel, right? After Jesus' death, his disciples were all clearly confused and afraid for their own lives. Dr. Simon Greenleaf says there's no possibility that they could have continued in Jesus' doctrines and an even greater impossibility that others would have been persuaded to follow them in those circumstances. But... With the assurance that Jesus is actually alive, they did go everywhere, boldly proclaiming the resurrection. And since then, millions have become followers and believers in the living Lord. As you look at the book of Acts, the beginning of the early church, and you just scan the book, you'll find multiple messages 
and preaching done where the resurrection is referenced and shown to be important. Also in the epistles, the resurrection is huge. And finally, in the book of Revelation, it opens up with Jesus Christ identifying himself as I am the first begotten of the dead. And then he goes on to say, I am he that lives and was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. The resurrection is the foundation cornerstone of the church. Secondly, we have predictions in the Old Testament that the resurrection of the Messiah would happen, which is interesting because the resurrection of Jesus caught the disciples completely off guard. They were totally surprised. There's no indication that there was anybody sitting around the garden tomb where I just showed you the video of waiting around, hoping, waiting for Jesus to rise from the dead. He said in three days he'd rise from the dead. Yeah, I remember. You heard it. We heard it. Yeah, he told the Jews that. Well, here we are. We're at the tomb. It's day three. Nobody was doing that. In fact, they were hiding in a room with the door locked and the windows shut in fear of their lives. Two of them were on the road to Emmaus. Just so sad how that all turned out back there in Jerusalem. Don't you know what happened this weekend? Jesus, who we thought was going to come and, and just deliver us from the Romans, and we thought he was the Messiah. And then they slaughtered him and nailed him to a tree. We're out of here. <laughs> Those are the disciples. That was their attitude. All of this was in spite of what he had actually told them, that he would die, that he would rise again. It's all evident from the scripture and from the lips of Jesus himself. Jesus told those two that were walking on the road to Emmaus, guys, he shows up to them. He says, these are the words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all of the prophecies must be fulfilled, which were in the law of Moses and spoken by the prophets and in the Psalms, all those things concerning me. Wake up, get a clue. The Old Testament prophecies would have been clearly understood by somebody who was diligent to study the word. In fact, one of the beautiful ones is in Psalm chapter 16, verses 9 through 10, and it reads this. It's a psalm that David wrote. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh will also rest in hope for you will not leave my soul in Sheol, the abode of the dead. Nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. And in Acts chapter 2, Peter is preaching the gospel on the day of Pentecost. And he references this, this scripture from Psalm 16. And he says to the Jews, you guys, David's not speaking of himself. Because we can go to his tomb here today. And there's his tomb and there are his bones. He died. His soul was left in shale and he, his body saw corruption. He rotted, don't open that, it stinks in there. Okay? He says, David was speaking of his great, 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 grandson, Jesus, the son of David, who is the Christ, the Messiah, who would be betrayed by his friends, murdered on a Roman cross, but in three days would rise from the dead. And even if the disciples had missed all of this from the Old Testament, they still should have anticipated it from the lips of Jesus Christ himself. But one thing is certain, the disciples could not have just fabricated this story of the resurrection <coughs> excuse me, from their own imaginations. Why? Because somehow they failed to even anticipate it, even after the prophecies, even after Jesus told them multiple times that it was going to happen, 
It took the strongest of evidences to convince them that it actually had taken place when Jesus is standing alive right in front of them. He says, guys, it's me. And they're like, beep, 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 beep. And he's like, feed me some food. See? And then he's like, watch me go through walls. Hmm? You know? He had to do some serious proving of it. There were prophecies. Jesus fulfilled them. The disciples didn't anticipate it. Thirdly, this main point of the empty tomb, perhaps my favorite main point. The first evidence that the disciples had of the resurrection is the empty tomb. Peter and John went and found the wrappings. The body had vanished out of them, and the grave clothes had been folded in place, as Blaine read today. And in the account of this, it says that Peter and John were racing towards the tomb after Mary told him the tomb was empty, and an angel told him. So Peter and John go running, and it says that Peter was first, and then Peter gets slow, and so John passes him, and John gets there first, sees that there's no stone. So John stops, and then here comes Peter. And Peter goes in first. And it says that then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also, and he saw and believed. You see, seeing that the tomb was open and empty, in this case, was certainly believing. When John saw, he believed. His doubts and fears immediately gave way to an immense, amazed faith. These clothes that had been folded up and collapsed yielded no possible interpretation except that the physical body of the crucified Lord had actually returned to life in such an incredible form that it could simply pass through linen wrappings and enter into this power of an endless life. So stinking powerful is the testimony of the empty tomb that the enemies of the cross of Christ have resorted to many strange and wonderful devices to explain it away. Now, listen to this. The alternative evidence, thanks, is not that he didn't rise from the dead, but it's actually that something must have happened to the body. Nobody denies that the tomb was empty. The burden of proof is on the skeptic in this case. And so the skeptic comes up with these crazy ideas. The first idea is that the disciples had stolen the body. Matthew 28.11 tells us that this is already a thought on the minds of the Jews. And let me read that to you. After the resurrection... Some of the guards came into the city and reported to the chief priests all the things that had happened. So when they assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the Roman soldiers, saying, Tell them his disciples came at night and stole the body away while you slept. So they took the money and did as they were instructed. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will appease him and make you secure. So they took that money, they did as they were instructed, and this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. Now this is out of the question, of course. The disciples stealing the body, first of all, the disciples were hiding in fear of their lives, and nothing could have been further from their minds that Jesus was actually going to be raised from the dead. Furthermore, 
the tomb had actually been sealed by the Romans and a, and a great stone, two tons, was rolled in front of it and a watch of Roman soldiers was set to guard it. Let's read that account in Matthew 27. On the next day that followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered together saying to Pilate, Sir, we remember while Jesus was still alive how this deceiver said, After three days I will rise. Therefore, command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people, He is risen from the dead. So then the last deception will be worse than the first. So Pilate said to them, You have your guard. Go your way. Make it as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. These were Roman soldiers that had been committed to a duty. If they slept, they slept in a horseshoe pattern around whatever they were guarding, with two guards still awake guarding the tomb in this case. If anyone allowed this, uh, this uh, tomb to be broken and something stolen, they would all be put to death. Another fanciful tale that is brought to try to explain away the empty tomb is what's called the swoon theory. And this is the suggestion that Jesus did not actually die on the cross, but actually fainted from weakness and only fainted. He was buried with the mistaken belief that he was dead And when he came back to consciousness two days later, because of the cool air in the tomb, he arose and just left the tomb, strolling past a Roman guard after throwing a two-ton stone some 50 yards away. I watched an interview with a man at Hempfest in Seattle, where the man declared that the only way that Jesus could have resurrected was by smoking hashish at the Last Supper, passing out on the cross, and coming to in the tomb. Now... How, in Jesus' weakened condition, he managed to disengage himself from the great weight of the wrappings and grave clothes, which we read had a hundred pounds of fragrant spices on them, then find his way in the dark over to the door, feel the seal of the Roman stone, about two tons in weight, they suggest, and then roll the stone away without waking any of the guards up, or maybe waking them up, and then doing some karate chop moves and killing all those guys. I'm not making this stuff up. Rolling away that giant two-ton stone, overpowering the Roman soldiers, and then searching out his hiding disciples. Apparently that's of little concern to the proponents of this odd swoon theory. Nor does this theory explain how at the sight of such a pitiful, chewed up, beaten down Jesus, beaten almost beyond recognition, weak past endurance by the loss of blood on the cross, how this could have excited a complete transformation within the cowering disciples. He must soon or eventually die anyway. I mean, can you imagine you're like hiding in your room and there's a knock on your door and you're like, oh no, it's the Romans, they're going to come kill us. And you open the door and there's like, the guy looks like a dog that got run over four times and like found his way. He's like, hey guys, it all worked out. Yay, let's go and tell everybody that you rose from the dead. There's no doubt that Jesus actually did rise from the dead after he died on the cross. In Mark chapter 15, 43, the centurion assures Pilate that Jesus is dead. I'm going to read you from Mark 14, two verses. Joseph of Arimathea was a prominent council member who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God. 
he came and took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Now, Pilate marveled that he was already dead. So he summoned the centurion and asked him if he'd been dead for some time. So when he found out from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. The spear that was thrust through his side made certain of his death, as it's mentioned that out of his side came blood and water. Physicians will tell you this is evidenced as a complete collapse of the heart cavity. Jesus actually did die of a broken heart. The third attempt to explain away the resurrection is that Mary and the other women went to the wrong tomb. Now that's not too hard to believe. I'm just kidding. Joke on women's directions there, but that's not... Okay, never mind. The scriptures tell us that there was no other tomb there. It was in a garden that was owned by Joseph of Arimathea. He's a well-known man in the community. Everybody knows where this garden is, and it says that no one else had been buried there. If the body was buried in another tomb, it could have easily been found by uh, these authorities, these Jewish, Jewish authorities, who were doing everything in, those pow- in their power the weeks to come to try to squash the Christian faith. And they would have made it fail miserably. If they could have just found and produced a body, the entire movement of Christianity would have collapsed. But they couldn't because Jesus was alive and had ascended into heaven. Now, going back to the six main points of the resurrection, we'll look at some skeptics theories again as we move on. But we have the appearances of Christ and the eyewitness accounts as major parts of the resurrection Not only was the tomb empty, but the disciples actually saw Jesus alive. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that Jesus rose from the dead on the third day, and he was seen by Peter, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at one time, of whom the greater part are alive and remain to this day, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles, then last of all, he was seen by me also as by one born out of, two, out of due time. So on 13 separate big occasions, Jesus appeared after he'd risen from the dead to Mary Magdalene, to the other women, to Peter, to two on the road to Emmaus, to the 10 of the disciples, to all 11 of the disciples eight days later, to seven disciples up at the Sea of Galilee, to 500 followers at once. And can we just pause there for a second? Did anybody hear that? 500 followers at once? I mean, let's just imagine that some, like, somewhat famous guy had been killed and risen from the dead here in Prineville, or at least they said so, and that he'd had all sorts of appearances to people here in town who would vouch for the reality that they saw him. And then he went on down to Prineville, uh, Pioneer Park here, and, and held a concert, a benefit concert, you know, whatever. And 500 people showed up and, like, rocked out with this guy, Right? And then they all said, we saw him. Would that be considered good evidence in a law in a judicial court? You see, in Jewish law, it only took two people, two or more witnesses, for something to be considered fact. Then he appeared to James, the brother of the Lord, and then to the eleven at the ascension. And in Acts chapter 1, verse 3, it says that Jesus showed himself alive after his passion, after the cross, For 40 days by many infallible proofs. 
Jesus proved that he was alive for over a month. He could have done P40X at that time, all right? He showed himself alive by many infallible proofs. Then he was seen by Stephen, he was seen by Paul, and he was seen by John the Revelator. This is historical information. If it were a lie, the Bible wouldn't list these eyewitnesses to go and double-check it. Of whom the greater part remain to this day. Call them up. Write them a letter. See if I'm telling you the truth. People don't do that if they're lying. And so because the appearances of Jesus and the eyewitness accounts are so incredible, again, the skeptics come up with many strange things to kind of explain it away. And so the fourth attempt to explain away the empty tomb and the resurrection is to say that all of these eyewitness accounts were merely all hallucinations or visions, perhaps induced by drugs or hypnosis or hysteria. The disciples, too, apparently had a little ganja at the Last Supper. But listen to what Henry Morris, Ph.D., says. Such hallucinations, if this is what they were, are quite unique in human history and warrant the most careful psychologic scrutiny. They were experienced by a large number of different individuals, all seeing the same vision, but in different groups at different times, both indoors and outdoors, on a hilltop, along a roadway, by a lakeshore, and other places. Furthermore, they were not looking for Jesus at all. Several times they didn't recognize him at first, and at least once they actually believed he was a ghost until he convinced them otherwise. He invited them to touch him, and they recognized the wounds in his hand. They watched him eat with them. On one occasion, over 500 different people saw him at one time, most of whom were still living at the time the evidence was being used. He goes on to say, the vision theory is thus quite impossible, and therefore the numerous appearances of Christ must be regarded as absolutely historical and genuine. This fact, combined with the evidence of the empty tomb, renders the resurrection as certain as any fact of history could possibly be. Last night as I was studying, it was about midnight when I came across this, I read of a new attempt to explain away the resurrection. You want to hear it? One professor who wrote his doctoral thesis on the evidence of the resurrection, a non-believer, was thoroughly acquainted with all of the facts and could not deny the facts of the honorable burial, the empty tomb, the post-mortem appearances, and the disciples' genuine belief in the resurrection. So, his only recourse was to come up with an alternative to the resurrection. So, he argued that Jesus of Nazareth must have had an unknown identical twin brother who was separated from him at birth. No one knew about him. He came back to Jerusalem at just the right time, stole Jesus' body out of the tomb after knocking out a couple Roman guards and disengaging the seal on the stone, and then he claimed to be Jesus, 
risen from the dead. Because that seems a lot more possible than that there's actually a God who loves us and sent his only son to live among us and fulfill the law and die in our place to be an atonement for the sins of all of the world. And he would rise from the dead three days later because he's God and he would stand in victory one day. No, let's enter in the twin brother that nobody knew about. We have the witnesses of the apostles as a big key point of the resurrection. It's completely impossible that the apostles could have preached and written as they did unless they were absolutely sincere and under deep conviction of the truth of what they preached. Listen to this, Dr. Simon Greenleaf. Can you remember that name, Simon Greenleaf? So I'm going to talk about him in a little bit. I want to just share a little bit of his testimony. But this is what he wrote in his book on the resurrection. He wrote, This doctrine they asserted, the disciples did, with one voice everywhere, not only under the greatest discouragements, but in the face of the most appalling terrors that can be presented to the mind of man. Their master had recently perished as a malefactor by the sentence of a public tribunal. His religion sought to overthrow the religions of the whole world. The law of every country were against the teaching of the disciples. The interests and passions of all the rulers and great men in the world were against them. The fashion of the world was against them. Propagating this new faith, even in the most inoffensive and peaceful manner, they could expect nothing but contempt, opposition, revilings, bitter persecutions, stripes, imprisonments, torments, and cruel deaths. Yet this faith they zealously did propagate. And all these miseries they endured undismayed, nay, rejoicing. As one after another was put to a miserable death, the survivors only prosecuted their work with increasing vigor and resolution. The annals of military warfare afford scarcely an example of the like heroic constancy patience and unblenching courage they had every possible motive to review carefully the grounds for their faith and the evidence of the great facts and truths which they asserted and these motives were pressed upon their attention with the most melancholy and terrific frequency these disciples had changed from instantly changed from craven runaways to bold spirit-filled proclaimers of christ and his resurrection such preaching cost them the lives of their families, cost them their possessions, intense persecution, finally the loss of their lives. But they kept preaching as long as strength permitted. Multitudes who believed in what they were preaching suffered the same persecutions. The Roman historian Sosthenes writes, Punishment and persecution was inflicted on the Christians, a class of men given to a new and mischievous miracle. What do you think that new and mischievous miracle was that brought on such punishment and affliction? It was the proclamation of Jesus Christ rising from the dead. And so imagine yourself in their shoes. If you were faking all of this, or if somewhere the body of Jesus was hidden away, or if he was still barely alive on a drip IV on a sickbed somewhere, or if they had been involved in some kind of a Passover plot and stealing the body, and they weren't really sure what they'd seen, if it was a hallucination or something from something they'd smoked the night before, it is inconceivable 
That they or their hosts of converts would continue on in this make-believe right up to the point of death itself. You see, people continue in lies because it benefits them. But when they start being tortured and put to death along with their loved ones, they give up the lie. Garant Ludemont is the leading German New Testament critic. He's a critic of the New Testament. But he writes, It may be taken as historically certain that Peter and the disciples had experienced something after Jesus' death in which Jesus appeared to them as the risen Christ. Because, coming to our next point, we look at the lives of the apostles. As Paul himself says, If Jesus isn't risen, then why do we stand in jeopardy Every hour. Whatever the truth was, the disciples seriously believed that he'd risen from the dead. They were enormously brave, traveled vast distances, went through shipwrecks, nights and days, bobbing up and down on ship debris. They faced nakedness and starvation and torture, enormous opposition, and they proclaimed with great strength and vigor that Christ had risen from the dead. We have evidence in their deaths. All of them were killed except John, who was boiled alive in a vat of hot oil before he was sent by the emperor Domitian to the island of Patmos to be exiled. Simon Peter, after watching his wife be crucified in front of him, as he yelled out to her, Remember the Lord! Remember the Lord! He then went to the cross. But before he was crucified, he said, I cannot die. I'm not worthy to die in the same manner as my Lord. And so they said, fine. And they crucified him upside down. Doctors have done research on this and have found that with such pressure upside down, your entrails would come out of your mouth. Andrew was crucified on an X-shaped cross outside of Odessa. Not only would he not deny that Jesus was alive, he preached to the passers-by as he hung pinned there on the wood. James, the son of Zebedee, was killed by Herod Agrippa I by the sword. Philip was put in prison and scourged and eventually crucified. Bartholomew was cruelly beaten and then crucified. Thomas and Matthew were both both thrust through with a spear. James, the son of Alphaeus, was stoned, refusing to deny that Jesus was alive. Jude was crucified outside of Odessa. Simon was crucified. Paul was beheaded. Matthias was stoned in Jerusalem and then beheaded. And then we have James, the brother of Jesus. Now, as you read the Gospels, James was not a believer in his brother being God and all that. I mean, could you imagine growing up and your brother's like, I'm God. And your mom's always like, why can't you be like your older brother? You know, can you imagine that? These guys did not believe in bro. You know, yeah, he thinks he's God. It's awesome. Right? And yet in Acts chapter 15, we see that something happened where James is actually a prominent leader in the church in Jerusalem. And Josephus, the Roman historian, tells us that James would be martyred for Christ in A.D. 60. Let me ask you, what would it take for you to believe that your brother was the Lord God? What would need to happen? What What would need to happen for you to die affirming that? Perhaps it was what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 when he said, And then he appeared to James. You see, lies turn many into cowards, but never heroes. And the death of the apostles is evidence. 
How do you explain the conversion of Saul of Tarsus? You know what that guy was? That guy hated Christians. He was like a Hitler against Christians. He seethed and grinded his teeth and breathed murderous threats against Christians. He went on a mission to murder Christians and to do everything he could to bind men, women, and children and drag them in chains to Jerusalem to be imprisoned and hopefully put to death. That was Saul of Tarsus. And while he had orders from the chief priest to go to Damascus and bring back Christians to be killed, he was on the road to Damascus and a bright light shone from heaven. He fell to the ground. The people around him also saw the light but heard not a voice. And the voice from heaven said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And from that moment on, Saul, whose name was now Paul, he didn't just say, okay, man, my bad, I back down, I won't kill Christians anymore. But he said, hey, I'm in. What do I need to do, man? I'm going to follow you with all my heart. And he became the most ardent evangelist and proclaimer of the gospel the world has ever known. He brought the gospel into Europe, over to Spain, and into Rome. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, the early church began to meet on the day of Sunday, rather than the Sabbath day of Saturday. Because of the resurrection, the church has changed lives for over 2,000 years. We're going to close down with some testimonies from additional authorities and scholars today. Even secular historians are primarily in agreement with the biblical accounts in Jesus' crucifixion and burial. That he was actually buried honorably by a Jewish Sanhedrin member named Joseph of Arimathea. Now just real quick, think about that. A Sanhedrin member, that means that Joseph was a member of the group that said crucify him. All right? And this guy went out and took him off the cross and gave him his own tomb. Secular sources also agree that there was an empty tomb and that the disciples genuinely believed that Jesus had risen from the dead. In his book, Justifying Historical Descriptions, the historian C.B. McCullough tells us that there are six historical tests that you can do to find out what the best explanation is of a historical account. And so you take your hypothesis, like ours, which is God raised Jesus from the dead, and you'll find that it'll pass all six tests. The first test is, does it have great explanatory scope? And we can say, yes, it does. It explains why there was an empty tomb, why the disciples saw post-mortem appearances, and why there's a Christian church today. Secondly, the test is, does it have great explanatory power? And we can say, yes, it does. It explains why the body's gone, and it explains why people, hundreds of people, repeatedly saw him alive. The third test is, is it plausible? And we can say, yes, it's plausible that the resurrection serves as a divine confirmation or vindication of those alleged blasphemous crimes that he was crucified for. The fourth is, is it contrived? And we can say, no, it is not contrived. It requires only an additional hypothesis, hypothesis, which is God exists which isn't an, existent, an additional hypothesis if you actually believe that God exists. Fifthly, 
Is it in accord with accepted beliefs? And we would all say, it is in accord with the belief that people don't naturally rise from the dead. The Christian accepts the belief that people don't just naturally rise from the dead. And we believe it just as much as we believe our hypothesis that God rose the Son from the dead. And sixthly, does it exceed any of its rival hypotheses? And we can say yes. It far exceeds any of its rival hypothesis in its meeting of the criteria one through five. I hope some of you got some of that. All right? It just means that, man, we have a great reason to believe that Jesus is alive today. To give you another historical account, I go to Josephus. Now, Josephus, if I can get to him, a little pic of him. Senior, senior, senior picture here. Josephus was a credible historian who was a Jew who fought against the Romans and then was captured at Jatapata. And then he was brought in to record and chronicle the rest of the accounts in the war against the Jews. And then he ended up staying and living in Rome until his death. He was a credible historian. I like what Mark Driscoll said. This is not a 13-year-old boy with a blog. He's an established researcher for emperors. And he was born just a few years after Jesus rose. And he lived while eyewitnesses still lived. And listen to what he writes in Testimonium Flavium from the Antiquities. Now there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man. For he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure he drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was the Christ. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men amongst us, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at the first did not forsake him, for he appeared to them alive again the third day, as the divine prophets had foretold these and 10,000 other wonderful things concerning him. And the tribe of Christians so named from him are not extinct to this day. I love that. We're a tribe, people. Oh, or whatever you do. Yeah, and we're not extinct. In fact, we're growing in numbers. Thomas Arnold, not to be confused with Tom Arnold, Roseanne Barr's ex-husband, was the professor of history at Rugby and Oxford. And he examined the combined evidences of the empty tomb, the numerous appearances, the changed life of the disciples, and the authenticity of the records. Not to mention he examined the testimony of 2,000 years of Christian history. That this man would say, I know of no one fact in the history of mankind which is proved by better, fuller evidence of every sort to the understanding of a fair inquirer than the great sign which God hath given us that Christ died and rose again from the dead. I love that there's logic. And if a fair inquirer would just come and examine the evidence, they would find that Christianity is a historical faith. It is a reasonable faith, unmatched to any other religion in the entire world. World, 
And in similar manner, Dr. Simon Greenleaf, do you remember that name? Told you to remember it. Simon Greenleaf, who was the Royal Professor of Law at Harvard University, who has one of the greatest legal minds that ever lived. He wrote a a famous treatise called... um, Let me get back there, sorry. Uh, He wrote a famous legal volume, rather, called A Treatise on the Law of Evidence, which is considered by some to be the greatest legal volume ever written. Dr. Simon Greenleaf believed that the resurrection of Jesus Christ was a hoax, and he determined once and for all to expose what he called the myth of the resurrection. After thoroughly examining the evidence for the resurrection, Dr. Greenleaf came to the exact opposite conclusion. He wrote a book entitled this. Are you ready for it? It's really long. An examination of the testimony of the four evangelists by the rule of evidence administered in the courts of justice. And in that book, he emphatically stated that it was impossible that the apostles could have persisted in affirming the truths they narrated had not Jesus Christ actually risen from the dead. Greenleaf concluded that according to the jurisdiction of legal evidence, the resurrection of Jesus Christ was the best supported event in all of history. And not only that, Simon Greenleaf was so convinced by the overwhelming evidence, he committed his life to Jesus Christ. John Singleton Copley, handsome lad, has been known to be the greatest legal mind in British history. He was the Solicitor General of the British Government, Attorney General of Great Britain, three times High Chancellor of England, and elected as the High Steward of the University of Cambridge, holding in one lifetime the highest offices ever appointed a judge in Great Britain. Here's what he writes. I know pretty well what evidence is, and I tell you, such evidence as the evidence for the resurrection has never broken down yet. This incredible evidence of the resurrection has never broken down yet. Then there's this friendly looking guy, Lord Darling. You'd be friendly too if your name was Lord Darling, who was the chief justice of England. He wrote, no intelligent jury in the world could fail to bring in a verdict that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is true. This is from Lord Darling, the once Lord and Chief Justice of England. No intelligent jury in the world could fail to bring in a verdict that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is true. Dr. Frank Morrison is a lawyer who has, been, who has brought up at the feet of such well-known atheists and skeptics as Oxford professor Matthew Arnold and brought up at the feet of biologist and evolutionist Thomas Huxley, both of those men openly denying the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But Frank Morrison's testimony can be found in the book Who, Who Moved the Stone? In the book he set out to write, he felt he owed it to himself and others to write a book that would show the lie about Jesus 
and dispel the mythical story of the resurrection. And looking at all of the evidence, he came to a different conclusion that Jesus actually did rise from the dead. So he did write a book, but not the one he'd set out to write. And he titled it, Who Moved the Stone? Defending the Bodily Resurrection of Jesus Christ. In my late night studies, I heard of a new source called uh, from a man, Pincus Lepi. Right? This evidence is so powerful that one of the leading Jewish historians, the late Pincus Lepi, who taught at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem, recently declared himself convinced on the basis of the evidence that the God of Israel raised Jesus of Nazareth from the dead. Then we've got this guy again. C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis was the former professor of medieval and renaissance history at Cambridge. And he believed, and I quote, Christians are dead wrong. End quote. He couldn't have been further opposed to Christians and the gospel they preached about this God who died and rose again. The last thing Lewis wanted to do was embrace Christianity. However, in 1926, he writes in his journal that the hardest boiled of all atheists I ever knew sat in my room at the other side of the fire and remarked that the evidence for the historicity of the Gospels was really surprisingly good. All of this stuff about the dying God, it almost looked as if it had really happened once. To understand the shattering impact of it, you would need to know the man who has never since shown any interest in Christianity, if he, the cynic of cynics, the toughest of the tough, were not, as I would still call it, safe, where could I turn? Was there no escape? And so Lewis sent out to research, and after evaluating the basis and evidence of Christianity, C.S. Lewis concluded that in any other religion, so think of all those other religions out there, there is no such historical claim as Christianity. And Lewis's knowledge of literature forced him to treat the gospel record as a trustworthy account. He writes, I was by now too experienced in literary criticism to regard the gospels as myth. Finally, contrary to a strong stand against Christianity, he was forced to make an intelligent decision. He writes this, you must picture me alone in that room in Magdalen, that was his home, night after night, feeling that whenever my mind lifted, even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him who I so earnestly desired not to meet. I mean, imagine this guy's like, I sense that God's calling me and I don't want him. Okay. That which I greatly feared had finally come upon me. And in the third term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God. And I knelt and prayed. Perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England, wrestling with the overwhelming amount of evidence. Lewis had an experience similar to my friend Chris Cross. Not the band, in case you're wondering. Not the boy band from the 80s. Chris Cross, he came and he spoke at our men's retreat last year, and he spoke here on a Sunday morning. And Chris tells me about when he was about 21 or so, he went to a, uh, he was invited by my friend Ryan to go to a, an evangelical crusade. And uh, he was anti-God at the time. And uh, the guy was preaching, 
And as the man was preaching, he he said, man, I want you to lift up your hand if you want to receive this forgiveness that's found in Jesus, if you want to declare him to be the Lord of your life. And Chris was like, this is the most stupid thing I've ever seen in my life. Stupid. Such a stupidest thing. And the Lord, I mean, talk about where you get into God's sovereignty in in the process of salvation. I mean, there was an effectual call on his life that day. And he was like, oh my gosh, the Lord is calling me tonight as the Lord called C.S. Lewis, as he wrestled with the evidence, knowing that there was no way he could turn a blind eye to the evidence. As we have the worship team come up, we come to the portion of our study today where, what do we do with all of this? So what? So what? Does your life reflect A life that believes in the resurrection of Jesus? See, the scriptures tell us that Jesus was delivered up because of our offenses, that's why he died. He died because of our sins. But then it goes on to say, but he was raised up for our justification. What does that mean? It means that Jesus died to pay the price for your sins that you might be forgiven and declared innocent in the sight of the Lord. And he was raised up that that innocence could be applied His resurrection shows the validity that his sacrifice was accepted by the Father. And that we can have that forgiveness of sins today. The resurrection is key in our faith and it's key in our salvation. In Romans chapter 10 verses 9 through 10 tell us that if we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, we will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Now maybe you've confessed with your mouth. Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Lord, he's up there in heaven looking down on me. But do you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead? You see, coming face to face with the risen Jesus will change your stinking life. And I'm not joking. Okay? The type of encounter that, that Saul of Tarsus had, where he's killing people, alright? He hates the thought of Jesus. Just slaughter these idiots. And then he comes across evidence similar to this that Jesus is alive. And there's a transformation. And you know what? Many of you here today, you're no better than Saul of Tarsus. And I was no better than Saul of Tarsus. My sin separated me from God. It was my sin that nailed Jesus to the cross. I would have been in the crowd yelling, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And you would have too. Because there's none right. No, not one. There's nobody innocent. There's none who in and of themselves seek after God. We have all gone astray.
And when you have an encounter, as you are today having an encounter with the historical evidence, the geographical evidence, a video by your own pastor, judges, professors, intelligent minds that were anti-Christ and said, let's just prove it once and for all. Let's get rid of these idiots. And then found out, oh, I was the idiot. It changes you. It changes you. And I fear that many of you claim to have had an encounter with the risen Jesus, but you've yet to be changed. You say, you, you give a verbal assent to that, that God's not fooled by. Lord Jesus, Lord Savior, Lord Savior Jesus. Lord Savior. But there's no fruit in your life of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That you really believe that he's alive today. That you really believe that he could come back at any second because he said that he would. That he was going to judge the wicked. That he was going to set up his kingdom and those who follow him would rule and reign with him. That after he rose from the dead, he ascended to heaven and he sent the Holy Spirit, not so we can get fat and sassy sitting on our couch all week long, but so that we can be out sharing this good news with the world. And I don't think you believe it. I don't think you believe it. I think there are some that don't believe it. And I think the Spirit of God is prophetically speaking right now that you need to repent and believe on the risen Lord and your sins will be washed away and he will take out of you that heart of stone that is as hard as wood and can't hear God and can't know God and church is as boring as heck and you don't want to have anything to do with the commands of, of taking up your cross and following him because it is too inconvenient for you. And you know what? I've been there. I've been there. But when you encounter Christ and you fall down at his feet as Thomas did and you say, my Lord and my God. He will take out your heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh that beats and knows God and wants to follow God and wants to hear from God by reading the scriptures and wants to be with the people that God bought with his precious blood. Don't you say you believe in Jesus if you ignore those things that he commands you to do. Those who believe, obey, don't be deceived. Hell is real and you're going there. You repent today and come and drink of the living water that Jesus gives you and you will never thirst again. You middle schoolers, don't ignore this. You high schoolers, this is you. High schoolers die all the time. You're going to go to hell. You old people, you're living for yourself. And you're at the threshold of eternity and it is high time to repent. Today is the day of salvation. Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive? 
Jesus said to Mary, after she rose her brother from the dead, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he will live again. And in the Gospel of John, he says, there will be those that are resurrected. Some will be resurrected to life and some will be resurrected to judgment. You will be resurrected. Your body will be resurrected. Do you know that the Bible teaches that? You won't just die and get, you know, whatever. Go party with your friends. No, you will die and you will stand before the throne of God. And if your name is not found written in the book of life, if you are not in Christ, you will go to hell forever. Forever. And by the grace of God, he's brought you here. And by the grace of God, this church has fasted for seven days that you would come here today and hear this message and repent and believe in the gospel. And let your life be spent for him. You don't have long. You don't have long. Quit living for yourself. Christians, quit living for yourself. Those of you that are saved, genuinely saved, praise God. But quit living for yourself. It's cost way too much. It's cost way too much. So what do we do with all this? We ask for forgiveness. For living our lives as if Jesus was dead in some Palestinian tomb somewhere that's covered by cobwebs. And we'll just figure it out in the end. You don't just figure it out in the end. By his grace, he's brought you here today to figure it out. And I pray that this knowledge would just seep from your brain and down into your heart in such a way that you will be transformed as Saul of Tarsus would be transformed. And that you would receive the Holy Spirit. And that you would be bold to live for Jesus now by his power. Do you receive that today? Is there anybody that would receive that today? Anybody want that? And you know this is you? And if you know that that's you today, in a response to Jesus, when you say, I have been living as if Jesus was dead, But thank you, Lord, for showing me today that you are very alive. And I want my life to be used for you, however much time I've got left. Some, it's years and years and years, Lord willing. And some, it's a very short time. And you would confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And you would believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And by coming here today, you would say, Lord, you're alive. I submit my life to you as Lord and I receive the forgiveness of sins that comes from you as Savior. You know who you are today. The Spirit of the Lord has spoken. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Primeville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write us at P.O. Box 378, Primeville, Oregon, 97754. Or check us out further at our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.